0: So I'm just wondering what you're wondering about when it comes to culture change.
1: The thing for me is, how do we bring those to scale so that we are not putting things out in the world, but we are really changing norms and rules?
2: And what are some of the rules that you feel need to be normalized in the context of racial justice, in the context of Color of Change's work? Welcome to Wonderland, where we explore the connections between pop culture, human nature, and social change. I'm Bridget Antoinette Evans.
0: And I'm Tracy Van Slyke. In our last episode, we talked about how fans are growing more and more empowered.
2: In the first part of the episode, Tracy spoke to Nerds of Color co founder Sean Taylor about the power of fandoms to influence Hollywood.
0: Then, in the second part of the episode, we heard from Kenyatta Cheese and Alicia Garza. They dove into what can be possible when social movements and fan communities collide.
2: Love, empowerment, just getting people together to form community, form family. This is going
1: to be a meaningful space to kind of figure out now.
2: There's great power in the hands of people. And they have a hunger to connect around issues and stories that are meaningful to them. In today's episode, we will look at who really holds the power in Hollywood and what movement leaders are doing within the entertainment industry to change the culture at large. And
0: so we've invited someone who is working at the highest levels of pop culture and social change.
1: My name is Rashad Robinson. I'm the executive director of Color of Change. And at Color of Change, we build campaigns, uh, campaigns that we believe are powerful enough to change the practices and the policies that hold black folks back and work to uh, advance the solutions that move all of us forward. And we think about that in terms of translating our presence in the world into power. And power is changing the rules. Sometimes those rules are written. And sometimes those rules are unwritten.
2: We wanted to know what the rules are, who's making them, and most importantly, how to change them.
0: And that's why we invited Rashad. Coming full circle from our first conversation with Alyssa Rosenberg, today you will hear about Rashad's work that is changing the power dynamics in Hollywood.
2: We began by asking him to offer his definition of culture change. And we wanted to know how he incorporates culture change strategy into his organization.
1: So I think there's like there's a set of rules and norms that govern society, right? And those are beyond laws. Um, it's almost like who gets held accountable for those rules and norms and who doesn't? Right? It's illegal to kill an unarmed black person already. And so when we talk about police reform, we're talking about a whole new set of laws, but in fact, it's like, why aren't the laws that are in place enforced? And so what's enforced, what's not enforced, that's at the root of culture. It's how human people are treated and how hostile or supportive the world is for folks. And media... Has a tremendous impact on what people do every day from the decisions that are made in churches and schoolyards and courtrooms, um, but to um, decisions about whether or not a room's going to be rented to you. And I think about really culture and culture change as the sort of way in which you get to live in a society and thrive in a society and the ways in which that is connected to your identity and who you are.
2: And if you had to point at particular culture change process that has been driven by social movements or social justice organizations, what are some examples of process that you found particularly inspiring or that you've been involved in? Mm
1: -hmm. I think there's a couple. I think the work that the you know, NAACP led in the 40s and mm-hmm. the 50s in the Sammy Davis Jr. era and really sort of identifying a clear strategy of advancing narratives about black folks in popular culture and the interest of an advocacy organization to sort of see a role in that. The work that the organization I used to work for, GLAD did, GLAD started in 1985 as a direct response to the coverage of the AIDS epidemic on the front page of the New York Post—horrific, um, salacious, defamatory, dehumanizing images. But Vito Russo, one of the early architects of the GLAD strategy, really saw power that images had to connect the stories and humanity of a community that couldn't be in every place. At every time, I think there's a lot of current movements that are quite inspiring. From the work of domestic workers um, wanting to tell their own stories, to the work of formerly incarcerated people wanting to be heard and counted in their own voices, to um, the dreamers and their um, storytelling, uh, I think that there are so many different examples of narrative and culture change strategies out there and the the thing for me is how do we bring those to scale so that we are not putting things out in the world but we are really changing norms and rules because for me once you can set the new rules which is what I think we did at glad there are new rules of culture that are created about what you can say and what you can't say, what you can do and what you can't do, that are a direct result of advocacy, direct result of constituency, direct result of strategy. And those rules are in place, and I don't see them being turned back
2: and what are some of the rules that that um that you feel uh, need to be normalized? in the context of racial justice, in the context of Color of Change's work?
1: Well, I think that when Black people are talked about, that Black people need to be in the room and Black people need to be leading those discussions. Black communities are talked about as the problem rather than a solution. So asthma rates come out and we talk about Black mothers instead of the corporations who are polluting. We see the stats around criminal justice and... We don't have a conversation around education and poverty and the fact that it's easier to get a gun in certain communities than it is to get a quality education. I think that when racism is talked about in the larger culture or shown in popular culture, consistently it's shown as individual acts. A bad apple here, a bad apple there. It allows society, a society that was built off of the practice of exterminating indigenous people and enslaving Black people and completely ignoring the intersections from a gender perspective of any of those communities. It allows a country and allows individuals to take themselves off the hook for how they benefit from the setup. I think some other rules that need to be changed is when criminal justice is shown on TV, we show a system that is oftentimes infallible over and over and over again when we have every bit of statistic that shows us that the system is flawed when we see it on TV. And in fact, there are standards and practices inside of networks that say that you can't show police officers certain ways. And so... That is a rule that we have to change if we are going to create a new set of practices and a new understanding about the world.
2: I have a a couple of questions. I kind of want to rewind to the point when you said there are actually rules or protocols within networks that say you can't talk about police officers in this way. I want to hear more about who told you that?
1: Well, we spend a lot of time with writers, Um, so we hear a lot of things from writers. And so we know that at least two out of the three major networks have some standard of practice in place about how they show law enforcement. Um, The rest, it is not as written in stone, but it is connected to advertiser dollars. It is connected to the power inside. So writers and showrunners will regularly get notes back about all sorts of things that you would be surprised that they get in 2017. They will get notes back taking out an interracial kiss. And so this is a sort of regular phenomenon. There are all sorts of ways where they'll change a police officer to a security guard Mm. so that they don't show the cop being the sort of angry one. And so unless we can create a new incentive structure through making people uncomfortable, then we actually don't get the thing that we want, even if we've convinced people that it's the right thing to do. And I believe that that that's how rule change happens. But if you don't have a plan for how you're going to take on corporations... are fighting against you and you don't have a strategy for inoculating, then you actually don't have a culture change strategy. You have a bunch of tactics that make you feel good. The fact of the matter is if a schoolhouse in Connecticut of beautiful white children can get shot up and America is overwhelmingly for gun reform and no piece of legislation passes. This is not just about public opinion. It's not just about getting a good story out there. It's about connecting the narrative with movement building and thinking about that in terms of power.
0: What's really important here, I think what you're laying out is actually a much broader power analysis when it comes to culture change, where it's not just about the narrative or the best storyline you can get next week or so forth, but a, a much broader analysis that the organizing world will apply to the kinds of campaigns it's trying to run, but doesn't actually apply to Hollywood. When we talked to Alyssa Rosenberg of the Washington Post, she was pretty skeptical about the likelihood of changing the entertainment industry. Here's what she had to say about it
2: you know, five or six years ago when it felt like issues of diversity and representation and inclusion were breaking out, I felt really optimistic that things were going to change. And I think Hollywood's ability to absorb those critiques without changing the fundamental structures of the industry is actually pretty capacious. At the end of the day, this is about how the industry is structured
0: so it'd be just great to get your reflections on, like, not only what is Color of Change doing, but what's your vision of how the industry needs to change behind the scenes?
1: First, I want to say that I kind of agree with that. Uh, lots of the criticism has been what I think of as presence, not power. So it's been press releases, statements, but it hasn't been disrupting of the model in any way. I do believe that we can make a lot of change. What I do agree with that Alyssa says is that I think that sometimes there's this magical thinking that liberal Hollywood wants to do the right thing and they just need to be told.
2: What does cultural power look like in this context? I understand about the rules, but in terms of what the different approach might look like in response to these waves of real amplified criticism of industry practices and the, what does power look like versus presence?
1: So I remember at GLAAD, like every time there was like a gay story on, um, they would have someone from the ex-gay community on air. I don't know if you all remember this era where they would have debates. and so They would have either someone from the Catholic Church or the ex-gay during Pride Month. Pride parades are happening. They want to have someone on that's like, quote unquote, been cured of being gay. And that person sort of does their best attempt to prove that they're not gay and tells their story. And then the sort of gay advocate is expected to sort of defend their humanity up against that. Um, And we would spend time trying to push back against that. And yet the networks felt like for a reason, right? Right from a power perspective, they had to like present both sides of a story because there are two sides to this story. There are two sides to being gay. And so cultural power looks like ending the practice of there being two sides to being gay. And even on like Fox News, you don't see ex-gay people on during private. Now they may, we still got fights to move, but the goalposts and the needle And the rules and norms were changed. And when that rule change happens, right, it floats out throughout the larger culture. And most importantly, from my perspective, it creates new possibilities for what we can actually do in terms of pushing the needle further. Because when you raise the floor, I believe you also push up the ceiling.
2: So we're really curious I think just about anybody who in the social justice world is thinking about the potential of culture change strategy and narrative strategy falls very, very quickly into the example of the marriage equality movement for obvious reasons, right? And yet, when you sort of dig a little deeper, there's so many assumptions and almost like a mythology, there's like a legend building around it. And it's really rare to have the opportunity to talk to somebody who was not only a leader within this strategy, but also like in the room. I just feel like there's a lot of people listening that would be really upset with us (laughs) that we didn't try to um, ask you what That experience was like being in the room where these kinds of ideas and strategies were being birthed and see if we can sort of dispel some of the mythology and and create some real truth telling about what it took Mm -hmm. for this narrative system to be activated at such a large scale.
1: So what I'll say is this. Oftentimes, when you're in the middle of something that gets talked about years later, you don't actually fully know you're in the middle. You're like trying to make a set of decisions. Some things work, some things don't work. One of the things that I will tell you that the marriage equality movement benefited from was an end goal. It was not an end homophobia campaign, it was not an end transphobia campaign. It was a pass this piece of legislation. Campaign. And racial justice movements have also done that. Voting rights, the Civil Rights Act. Another thing that's important is that I remember very clearly when we moved away from using 1,138 federal rights that marriage affords and went to love, respect, compassion. And I remember that very clearly because, you know, when straight people get married, They get married because they love each other, because like their family wants them to, because someone got pregnant. There are like a whole host of things why straight people got married. And folks were looking at LGBT folks as wanting something different than they did. And so changing that was very important. The storytelling that we had to change in terms of TV portrayals of LGBT couples was so clear But it was about building power. And one of the things I'm most proud of is during my time at GLAAD, we launched something called the Network Responsibility Index under my leadership. And the Network Responsibility Index was at a time when we had had a bunch of LGBT shows on the air that were mostly like portrayals of white folks in cities, like Will had never had a boyfriend on uh, Will and Grace and, you know, a fit well-to-do white lawyer on the Upper West Side is going to have some men. Hey, big news, Will! I've discovered a
0: universe where your egg-headedness is celebrated and your feta cheese thighs are overlooked.
1: (laughs) It's the gay spelling bee! (laughs) A gay spelling bee? Can we do that? What happened to the policy of don't ask, don't spell? (laughs) Like the idea that, like he can't find any man. can't ever find a date. That it just kind of did feeling. not make sense for folks. It was like NBC like fying this world. and and so we created this report where we graded the networks. And what we did was we looked at both qualitative and quantitative look at all the networks. And we disaggregated the data by race, by where you fell within the LGBT community. Um, we also had a metric around visibility. And then we did a qualitative assessment in terms of the storylines. You know, was the LGBT person the, the sidekick? Were they like the butt of the joke? Like how nuanced were the stories? And then we would grade and we would release the report during the television critics upfronts. And we had a whole strategy where we would get um, an LGBT journalist in the room where the network execs are now releasing their new slate of shows to advertisers, to the media, and they are sitting on stage. And then they have to answer a question why they failed the Glad report. They are not happy. And so we experienced a moment where the networks were outraged the first year, like they threatened to pull funding of GLAAD awards. The two networks that did well were happy. The cable networks were outraged that they weren't part of the report. We expanded the reports, got the cable folks involved. We really honed our methodology so that it was very clear and unimpeachable. And then we rolled out the next year, once again, at the television critics up front. And we had two networks that, like, were ready for the question and were talked about the LGBT characters, Fast forward to the next year and the week before, now networks are calling us in to meetings to have a conversation about their lineup. And show us shows this was the year that ABC behind the scenes and Fox behind the scenes showed us Modern Family and Glee, respectively. But we did a lot of work. I remember when Grey's Anatomy was bringing out Sara Ramirez's character on air, and we brought Latino lesbians who had come out in their 30s into the writer's room to have a conversation with the writers, to help them craft a storyline that was more authentic. But, like, that was, like clearly a culture change strategy that made lgbt characters the norm where you got to a point where like a tv show sort of was out of step if like someone wasn't gay and those were like the strategies that may seem interesting now but at the time it was not funded by foundations it was funded by like individuals who believed in glad's larger long-term strategy who did not believe that change for LGBT people was going to happen on a year-to-year cycle, who were like giving $5,000 a year to the organization, and who largely funded the flexibility to do this work. Now, those folks were largely white gay men. They wanted to see white gay men portrayed. The pushing that we could do to like diversify was... Clearly, a strategy we had to consistently explain why that's important, why it's this is not charity but strategic it was about building power. It was a power play. It was not just getting in and having like friendly gay executives inside of the room. In fact, many of the people who were like not helpful were gay, they were in their position, basically. And we experience this now in racial justice. They're in their position to sort of like keep the gays in line or keep the blacks in line. And so we regularly ran into folks who were not helpful. This also was a whole set of ways that the larger community, because of white privilege, was able to access board members, executives in the C-suite, people's cousins, and mother's tennis partner, um, the like— range of connections that we were able to leverage when we were having a problem with ABC and we wanted to take a full page ad out in Variety, the Hollywood Reporter and uh, the LA Times. I remember sending the note of like the plan that morning to a couple of members of my board. By one o'clock I had had $100,000 to do it. Now, the time would have passed by the time you would have gotten the grant to do said thing. A foundation is never going to give you money in advance to decide when you might take out a full-page ad. All of that is important, and I do think that oftentimes when people talk about the marriage equality movement or LGBT equality and people experience it, it can feel like something that was incredibly quick. And I will tell you that GLAD is still at it, and they better be because we still have not passed an Employment Non-Discrimination Act for gay folks and trans folks. There were beautiful marriage ceremonies in Chelsea and the West Village after New York passed marriage equality, and people were still afraid to walk home at night in other parts of the state. So we should fully recognize what was changed in terms of the culture and how that all relates to power, access, and privilege. Marriage equality passed. And the fight to, like, end discrimination, to end the hostile world, it still continues.
0: One of the things we've been talking about through this series is the role of fans to have actual people power within the pop culture movement. Have you guys been thinking a about how fans can play a role in partnership with community organizations and community organizing and movements You know, we talked about it with Alicia and we talked about it with Sean Taylor from Nerds of Color. And as movement groups, we're just really fascinated about this opportunity to bring together shared passions around the kind of world we want to live in and the kind of
1: stories we love. Mm -hmm. I think a lot about subcultures in general, like the subcultures that make up the black community, the Afropunk and the black church and the sorority and the black nerds and the, um, you know, I I think about subcultures and subcultures as an organizing strategy. And so folks who have attachments and connections and see themselves inside of different pieces of art or culture, that to me is absolutely a place you want to be if you're an organizer, right? One of the
2: questions that came up during the conversation between Alicia and Kenyatta was, what would it look like to use the sort of methodology of cultivating fandoms to cultivate communities around social justice ideas or issues? And I'm wondering, you know, this is an organization that has a really vast community around it. And where you've seen some of that fan behavior Already emerge,
1: you know it. Uh, that's a really great question, and I think it's so um, poignant that Alicia was having that because Black Lives Matter, which was a post on her Facebook page after the Zimmerman verdict, that has translated into an international cultural phenomenon. That is exactly that—that that people have made it their own in ways that are amazing and incredible, and in ways that are like, ugh. <sighs> I think that without the sort of fandom, without the culture of people's connections and engagement, we really couldn't do what we do. Because I oftentimes see us as like seeing what's happening out in the world and then thinking about, okay, now how do we direct the energy to the most strategic thing to do? I also sort of sit somewhere between the fandom space and the space of like the old organizations that were like brick and mortar where you had to be a joiner. Where what we're trying to do is not try to direct or sit in front of every single march, but figure out how do we help direct the march to the right place. And for like instance, in this moment, right, How do we direct the march to the media outlets, to the corporations, not to Trump, but to those that enable Trump, to the culture that enables it? How do we strategically direct the march that way? That's how you make black folks. That's how you make progressive ideas. That's how you make women not just present, but powerful. What's your vision, say, a decade from now? I think a couple of things that I think are different. I think that we will have really shifted the like nameless, faceless, or the sort of Black sidekick without backstory that others Black people and foregrounds white stories, white narrative, and white humanity, we will have gotten to a point where we have enough diverse and interesting portrayals where that is no longer the prevailing thing that happens. So that's one thing. I'm hoping over the next 10 years that we can really shift the way that criminal justice storylines are told and criminal justice is portrayed. I do not believe that in 10 years we're going to like be able to like not have the law and order shows around, but I do believe that we can start pushing other type of shows and as a result force those type of shows to have to change. I have a lot of urgency around how do we sort of get the liberal Hollywood who's been so invested in holding up the state through the stories they tell, but is outraged by what's happening in D.C. to see what they're doing as part of like different sides of the same coin. And then finally, for Color of Change, and I don't think about this, I don't think about power just because I want people to return our phone calls, although I do, because <laughs> I remember what that meant at Glad when like you call somebody when you had a problem and then an hour later they're like calling back and the decision maker is on the line, what that then does for your ability to take on more fights. And I use the example of the ADL and I'll use the example of Glad. I want to build the type of power that gets us closer to that in a way that is intersectional and in a way that is about humanizing the larger community. So not in a way of just building power, but in a way of like being able to force decision-makers to be nervous. And for me, I would love to change hearts and minds. That's what I'm in the business of. But I will settle in the next 10 years on changing behavior. I couldn't do this if I didn't believe that it was possible if I didn't, like, fundamentally believe that I, that I was moving the ball in the right direction.
0: So we really appreciate Rashad offering some much-needed perspective as well as insider knowledge of what it takes to impact the power structure in Hollywood.
2: Yeah, given all that's at stake... Given this unprecedented moment in time and given the power of pop culture, we really needed to hear from someone like Rashad, someone who has had great success in actually changing people's behavior.
0: I think the place where we have to start changing behavior is inside Hollywood. Because if Hollywood changes how they make decisions and hired more people to tell better stories from different voices and different perspectives, that alone creates so many more stories and experiences for mass audiences that could hearken tremendous change.
2: It it makes me think a lot of our conversation with Alyssa Rosenberg, way at the beginning of the Wonderland season, and her belief that maybe not much has changed and that change will not come anytime soon. And this was really the inspiration for this season of conversations. So the question is, how did we do? After all these conversations with all of these amazing people, is change really possible?
0: I think it is. Rashad's stories about his successes reminded me of all these lessons we've learned from the experts we've met throughout this entire season, actually beginning with something else that Alyssa said about meeting people where they are. That's the first rule of effective organizing and effective pop culture change.
2: Movement leaders like Ai-jen Poo and Rachel Lloyd also really focused on empowering storytellers. They want people who are marginalized the most to be the protagonists in movies and television shows. And let's not forget what futurist Skylar Brown said we needed. Good strategy It starts with deep audience listening. We just won't get it right if we're only listening through the standard focus group or looking at statistics and metrics.
0: Plus, that's where Sean Taylor and Kenyatta Cheese come in. They talked about how audiences use their passion and joy as the catalyst to organizing and how they are also becoming the next generation of pop culture storytellers.
2: Both Rashad and Sony talked about breaking the rules, redefining the frame. Because if you can do that, then the harmful tropes and stereotypes will no longer be acceptable.
0: One of the most dominant threads from our season is the power of imagination. The ability to help people have a sense of shared purpose. To feel that they belong. To see what's possible in the midst of some pretty tough times, like the present moment.
2: Yeah, and I feel like what all of our guests helped us to see... Is the role that the imagination can play in unlocking new ways of working, that we have to apply imagination even inside of the work, even as strategists and creatives and movement leaders, that we have to kind of model the bravery that it takes to push really far beyond the way things have always been done the way that the social justice movement has tried to pursue change in the past and look to what's possible if we test a new idea, work with different kinds of people, step over the fence into a wildly different field and get creative.
0: When you root that sense of imagination in the stories we want to tell, in the strategy we want to build, and the power shifts that we need to make, that's where we start to see how culture change is not only a possibility, but is a reality.
2: I still have so many questions. Yes, I'm wondering about- Those are for the next season of Wonderland. We really want to thank all of you for joining us.
0: Yes, and stay tuned for more Wonderland. In the meantime, tell us what you wonder about. Record a voice memo and email it to us. Drop us a line on our website or on Facebook or talk back to us on Twitter.
2: We may be done with this season, but the work is only beginning. Wonderland is
0: made possible with support from the Nathan Cummings Foundation, Unbound Philanthropy, and the Pop Culture Collaborative.
2: Nancy Batali produced the series. Destry Sibley is our editorial producer. Duff Harris is our sound engineer. Kyle Morisak is our audio technician in Chicago. Rigoberto Lara is our research assistant. This episode was recorded at the Awareness Group Studios in New York City and at Experimental Sound Studio in Chicago. Special thanks to Kevin Plesner, Alicia Meeks, and Anthony Rivera.
0: Visit our website, thisiswonderland.us, for resources to develop your own culture change strategy.
2: And there are stories and videos of our conversations with Rashad and links to the work mentioned in this episode.